The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. All scriptures God breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly furnished for every good work. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, let's make sure we're in fellowship, ready to go, ready to concentrate, focus on the Old Testament. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You so much that we can come to You, that You are the Creator, God who made heavens and the earth and all that is in them. You have declared the end from the beginning, and You have created man for Your purposes to glorify You as Your representative on the earth. And Father, You are the one who has taken the initiative from eternity past to provide a solution to the problem of sin, and You are continuously working out Your plan and your purposes in human history. For this we give you the honor and the glory. Now, Father, as we study your word and continue to understand your plans and purposes, we pray that you would help us to see how these things work together and how you are in control, that we may be challenged by these things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we continue in our study of the Old Testament, orienting to the Old Testament. One of the problems that many people have is that there's so much history in the Old Testament and so many names that are difficult to pronounce. My favorite is Meher Shalal Hashbaz. That's something that nobody ever names their child. You, know, you hear all kinds of biblical names. But we get lost in the details and somehow it seems like we're wading through quicksand. And the New Testament is much more familiar to most believers the problem is the New Testament seems to indicate that you can't understand it without having a good grasp of Old Testament concepts and Old Testament doctrine. So that is why we are orienting to the Old Testament. Now when we look at the Old Testament as it's laid out historically, if you understand this and get a grasp of this basic outline, then everything else plugs in. That's why we keep reviewing it. First of all, there is the Law, the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses, Genesis, through Deuteronomy. This covers creation to the point when the nation Israel is at the borders of Canaan ready to go in and take the land that God has given to them. It's written about 1440 B.C. on the plains of Moab by Moses. Then you have the historical books. The historical books begin with Joshua, Joshua, Judges. Ruth was really a sort of an appendix to Judges. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, the books of Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, these are the historical books that cover the time from 1440 B.C. when Israel goes into the land until 586 B.C. when finally the southern kingdom is taken out of the land under divine discipline. At the beginning you have a theocracy, then the united monarchy under Saul, David, and Solomon. But in 931 B.C., on the death of Solomon, his son Rehoboam follows the advice of his younger counselors and not the older, wiser counselors, and he increases taxation. And there's the first, one of the first tax revolts in history. And the ten tribes in the north uh, split out, and you have the divided kingdom. United kingdom and then the divided kingdom, where you have the ten tribes of Israel in the north, 
and the two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, in the south. In 722 B.C., the northern kingdom is taken out, destroyed in divine discipline by the Assyrian army, and then in 586 B.C., the southern kingdom is destroyed by the armies of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, and they go into 70 years of exile. Then you have the three post-exilic historical books, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. That covers the panorama of Israel's history and the history of the Old Testament. All of the other books plug into that historical framework. Job is the earliest of the books. We don't know exactly when it was written. Probably sometime between the flood and Abraham, but we cannot be certain. Then you have the Psalms. Psalms were written by a variety of authors. The main author was David, but some were written by Moses, some were written by priests after the exile. So the Psalms cover quite a range of time. Then you have the books of Solomon, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, and this is written by Solomon, approximately 950 B.C. Then you have your major prophets. Your major prophets, you have Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. I think now you don't realize you need glasses so much if we put that in focus. <laughs> Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Jeremiah and Ezekiel function as prophets prior to the exile, warn of the exile, and then go into the exile. As the, and Daniel operates within the exile. Then you have your twelve minor prophets comprised of pre-exilic prophets, exilic prophets, and then your three prophets that come after the exile, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. This is the structure of the Old Testament. You can put it all together. Now, we have seen that the central verse that would help us to understand the purposes of God's calling Israel found in Exodus 19, 5-6a, where God says that, that, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So God is calling Israel out specifically to be a nation of priests. A priest was to be an intermediary. A priest was to come between the people and God. A a mediatorial and intercessory role. So the nation Israel is designed as an intercessor for all the other nations to come to God. We had seen that the... Pentateuch is laid out according to the plan and structure of what's called a suzerain-vassal treaty form. This was a secular contract form, put it in modern lingo, the secular contract form. And it tells us one thing that substantiates the claim of the Scripture, that it's written about 1400, 1500 B.C., because that was the standard form used at that time. Now, that terminology is a little new to most of you. A suzerain refers to a nation that controls another nation, in international affairs, but still allows it a measure of domestic sovereignty. Or it could refer to a feudal lord to whom fealty was due. Now, the first meaning is the one that we're using here, and it was usually at that time you'd have a major nation, a great king, who would have conquered two or three other smaller nations. He would give them a measure of sovereignty, but he would enter into a covenant with that king, and, and, and in that covenant he would promise to bless them and to provide certain services, goods and services for that nation if they continued in obedience and maintained the alliance with the greater power. And then he would threaten them with a certain amount of cursings and things that he would do to them if they broke the alliance. The vassal, vassal refers to a person who held land from a feudal lord and received protection in return for his homage and his allegiance to the overlord. The Susan Vassal Treaty was a mid-2nd century, mid-2nd millennium B.C. treaty, around 1500 B.C., that was used standard, it was a standard treaty used between a powerful empire and its client nation. Human treaties. Now, this is important to get because sometimes you can get this backwards. It's not, we're not saying, or I'm not saying, that God invented the treaty form. What I'm saying is God initiated a covenant with man and then man when, man, when the human race develops, man comes along and says, okay, we need to enter into a contractual relationship here. That model that they had was how God had dealt with man. And so this helps us understand what's going on in 
the Old Testament. It's just basic historical background. Now, in a vassal sovereign, excuse me, in a Susan vassal treaty, there are basically three parts. There are more to it, but at this stage, I just want to focus on three sections. There's a historical introduction which would review all the things that the great king, the sovereign, had done for the vassal over the years. And this is the layout of Genesis 1-1 up through 19-2. Just a sweeping panorama of history covering three or 4,000 years of history from creation up to the Exodus and the nation Israel coming to Mount Sinai. And then everything comes to a screeching halt. You just see event after event after event, and then it stops. And from Exodus 19 through Numbers 10, you have a one-year period of time when Israel is camped out at the base of Mount Sinai where God gives to them the Mosaic Covenant, and you have the Mosaic Law covered from Exodus 19 to Exodus chapter 40, and you have all of the requirements for the tabernacle, the priesthood, and everything else. And during that time, that they build the tabernacle and that they sew the garments for the priests and the high priests and put everything together before they head out to go to the land. And then there's a historical conclusion to the covenant. And in the historical conclusion to the covenant, there's always a series of blessings and curses. And that's exactly what you find at the end of Deuteronomy. After God has made the covenant with Israel, there's a series of blessings and curses. That if you obey me, I will prosper you as a nation. I will prosper you agriculturally. All nations in the world will come to you for trade and you will have a uh, a tremendous, growing, prosperous economy. But if you disobey me, you violate the covenant, then I will bring various judgments. And these judgments are outlined. We know them as the five cycles of discipline. And these are outlined there at the end of Deuteronomy. Now, what happens is that Moses is at Sinai and on the plains of Moab and he is writing these books to answer certain questions that the Jews might have about their history. Where did we come from? Why are we here? So this is the, the reason that we should, or the framework within which we should read the Pentateuch. Why did God choose Israel? Read this document. And the whole thing is one document from Genesis to, to Deuteronomy. Why? Read it as a Jew. Asking questions. Why are we here? What is our purpose? Why did God choose us? What is our national purpose and destiny? How did we come into existence? What is the meaning of this covenant that God has specifically chosen us as a covenant partner? And then how does God's plan of salvation, how is God's plan of salvation being developed through Israel in history? And we saw in our previous lesson when looking at the creation and the fall that man was created in the terminology, there's the same kind of terminology used in a Susan Vassal Treaty. Man was created to rule and to subdue the earth. He is an, the image bearer of God. He is in the image of God and he is the image of God. He is God's vice regent. He is God's representative to rule and reign over the earth. But man violates that by breaking the prohibition in the garden and plunges the human race into sin. So here we see the, the first judgment and the first curse. When you read Genesis 3, you should be thinking in light of the fact that the Jews are on the verge of going into the land. They get the restatement of the law in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy means second law. Deutero to namas law. It means a reiteration, a reconfirmation of the Mosaic law. They're hearing from Moses that if you obey God, you're going to be blessed certain ways. If you disobey God, these are the curses, the judgments that will come. Now, let's go back in history and see how God has continually judged man for sin in history from the creation. This is God's standard operating procedure, but with judgment, there is always grace and blessing. So, when we read Genesis 1 through 11, we need to be thinking in terms of where this is going. It's going to Genesis 12, when God is going to call out Abram, from all the nations to to, uh, appoint him the head of a unique and special nation in all of history because the human race is an absolute failure in terms of fulfilling their initial mandate, which is to rule and subdue the earth. Man is continuously disobeying God. So this brings us to Genesis and the structure of Genesis, that there are four events and four people. Get this down, you'll understand Genesis. It gives you that framework within which to plug the details. The four events are the creation, fall, flood, and the Tower of Babel. 
The four people that follow are Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, the patriarchs of Israel. Now, in the past three lessons, we have studied the creation and the fall, and this morning we will cover the flood. We should cover a wide range of territory this morning from Genesis chapter 4 through Genesis chapter 10, I hope. And that will set us up to start with Abraham next week. Genesis 6-5. We wanted to go to a theme verse to focus on the this section from Genesis 4 through Genesis 11, which sets the stage for the call of Abram. It would be Genesis 6-5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, the next verse, in verse 8, or two verses down, we find the contrast. And on the one hand, we see the evil of man, man's rebelliousness towards God, the increase of sin. You read Genesis 4 through Genesis 11, and the main thing that stands out is that man continuously, time and time again, rebels against God. Man is not obedient to God. Man continuously seeks to try to live his life independent of God and to create his own reality. In contrast to the ebb and flow of human history away from God, you find in Genesis 6-8 the unique statement, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And so here we see the, the twin themes of this entire section, judgment and blessing. And God's grace always precedes judgment and goes along with judgment. In Genesis 6, 11 and 12, we see a further development of this, this theme. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. This is the indictment of the antediluvian civilization. Now, one of the things that we learn in this process is that God has given us the ability to think and we think with words, and so we have to develop vocabulary that explains what we're talking about. So I'm going to introduce you to a few key words. Antediluvian. Anti means before. Diluvian refers to a deluge or a flood. So we'll talk about the antediluvian civilization which refers to that civilization that was on the earth prior to Noah's flood. And then we will talk about the post-Diluvian civilization, which is that civilization developed by Ham, Shem, and Japheth following, following the flood. So we'll begin by just giving a brief synopsis of what goes on in the antediluvian civilization in Genesis 4 and Genesis 5. So you might want to turn there in your Bibles to Genesis 4. We'll just hit some high spots. Remember, this is just an orientation type of uh, series. This is not getting into all the nuts and bolts. We did that a little bit at the beginning because it lays the framework. What has happened in Genesis 3 is that man has fallen. There is now a fallen environment. Nature has fallen. Uh, all of the every aspect of the natural world, botany, biology. The human race, everything has been impacted by Adam's sin. And they are cast out of the garden. In the last verse of chapter 3 we read, So he, that is God, drove the man out. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim, the cherubs. Cherubs are always associated with guarding the holiness and righteousness of God. He stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. If man could get into the garden of the tree of life, he would not die physically. He would continue to live forever uh, physically. Now, the interesting thing here is that the Garden of Eden is still on the earth during the time of the antediluvian civilization. And we said that the Garden of Eden is not Eden itself, but Eden itself is the abode of God on the earth during, this, during the time before the fall. So God's abode... Eden is still on the earth throughout this antediluvian period. If you wanted to, you could uh, take a hike and go down and watch the cherubim and the flaming sword keeping you from entrance into Eden. This is a physical geographical location on the earth and it was visible to anyone who wanted to go see it. 
So it's interesting that even at this time you have the physical presence of God on the earth just as you will in the Millennial Kingdom. And just as at the end of the Millennial Kingdom there will be hundreds of thousands who reject God and reject His grace, there were uh, millions, if not billions, who rejected God and His grace in the antediluvian civilization. There is a parallel between the two. In fact, I think that uh, one of the most fascinating things that we could study is what's called the protology and eschatology. Protology meaning pro first, the first things, and the last things, and show a parallel between how things began and how things will end in terms of broad themes. So man is cast out of the garden. He can't come back into the garden, yet God's presence is still on the earth. He is still executing judgment. Remember, human government is not initiated and the institution of government is not established until after the flood. What did they do in terms of government prior to the flood? God is executing judgment personally on the earth from the garden. He is adjudicating human problems. Totally different world than what we have in the post-Diluvian world. And we must come to grips with that. The first story, of course, is that of Cain and his brother. One of the things we see in this is that Cain brings uh, from his... He's the farmer. He brings from his own produce a sacrifice to God. Abel is the keeper of the flocks, keeper of the sheep. From what we see is that sheep are domesticated from the very beginning. So there, there again we see, as I pointed out in our study in John, that when God created sheep, He created them for a purpose, to be an illustrative tool to teach principles about salvation. And apparently, although the text doesn't tell us everything, there's so much that's left out here, because of the fact that God rejects Cain's offer, his, his offering is his own works, what he has done. Whereas Abel's offering follows the mandates of God, his offering is, is a sacrifice of a lamb, and that is acceptable to God. And God rejects Cain's offer, which is, indicates God always rejects man's works. And Abel relies not upon what he has done, but upon what God has, has provided for him and God has, has instructed him to do. So we see this contrast here. It's not like the liberal theologian comes along and says, well, it's a battle between the farmer and the rancher. Or as others will interpret this, when Cain finally gets, after he kills Abel and he is punished, and the mark of Cain was apparently a particular physical representation. We don't know what it was. It wasn't a change of skin color or anything like that. But it was something that was visible that would protect him. God was not utilizing capital punishment at this time. And then Cain goes out after uh, his judgment on him for his murder of Abel. He goes into the city. And that's another liberal interpretation. This is not a story of the city versus the farmer. That's, liberals always come along. I don't know where they get these ideas. But what God is showing us here, because the idea of a city inherently is not evil or wicked. Because eventually, where do we as believers all end up dwelling? The New Jerusalem. We're going to be in a mega metropolis forever and ever. So a city, the urban environment is not inherently evil. But the picture here is that the origination of the city in this context is designed so that men who are rebelling against God can come together and hopefully their numbers will increase so that they can then stand and fight against God. That's the image that you have here. The city is not evil in itself. It is, it is being used for an evil purpose, and that is to raise man's standards against the authority of God. And the remainder of chapter 4 is going to cover the descendants of Cain and his family. And you see a picture of evil that is taking place here and from one generation to the next. And you have, I want you to notice the genealogy here. Look at verse 18. We're a couple of generations down now. This is Enoch is Cain's uh, first son. Now, Enoch was born Erad, and Erad became the father of Mahujael, and Mahujael became the father of Methushael, and Methushael became the father of Lamech. Now, this gets us into looking at the genealogy. Look at the difference between that 
and skip over to chapter 5 and look at verse 6. Seth is the replacement son of Abel. Adam and Eve had several sons and daughters and they intermarried. That's always a question somebody comes up with. Usually a child, but a lot of adults are thinking it. Well, who did Cain and Abel marry? They married their sisters. Well, isn't that incest? No. Incest is not forbidden by God until the Mosaic Law. Well, why is that? Well, there's a reason incest is wrong. And that is that when you have a a limited gene pool and a limited number of genetic options, then the offspring in an incestuous relationship is going to be deformed. But Adam and Noah's children all had every possible genetic combination possible. They had... See, genetic combinations ultimately could only have a, a finite amount. But what you have at the beginning is X being the finite amount of available is quite large. But as you go from generation to generation and you start having various restrictions, as we'll see at the Tower of Babel, then the amount of genetic uh, possibilities decline until it gets to a point where it is no longer feasible or no longer uh, valuable, or in fact it becomes dangerous to have uh, uh, intermarriage from people who are too closely related. Adam married Sarah. When he told Pharaoh that she was his sister, he was only telling a half-lie. He was his half-sister. When Isaac married Rebekah, he marries a first cousin. So what we see here is that don't read later mandates and prohibitions into earlier scenarios. So they have their their uh, they marry they marry sisters, and it's uh, we'll get into the population explosion in a minute. But what we see is comparison from Genesis 4:18 with Genesis 5:6. There we read, and Seth lived 105 years and became the father of Enosh. Then Seth lived 807 years after he became the father of Enosh and he had other sons and daughters. Now compare those two verses, Genesis 5, 6, and 7 with Genesis 4, 18. What's the difference? The difference is numbers are added in the genealogy of chapter 5. There are no numbers in the first genealogy. Now it is very possible that when you look at the Hebrew verbiage that's used, and when it says, now to Enoch was born Arad, that could skip three or four generations. But when you add numbers, you tighten and you protect your genealogy from the insertion of any absences. So there can't be gaps in a genealogy when you have a numerical formula. And the formula of chapter 5 is that X, one, whatever the individual was, for example, Seth lived Y years. He lived 105 years before he gave birth. Now, he could have given birth to a number of children prior to that because he would have reached physical maturity probably when he was uh, maybe as early as 20 or 30 because some in the genealogy did give birth. The son that's mentioned was that early. So we don't know if, if um, Enosh is his firstborn or just the one that God chose to emphasize. X lived, Seth lived 105 years and became the father of Enosh. And then it says, then X lived, that is, Seth lived, Y more years. It says he lived 807 more years and then he died. Well, Enosh was not his only child. So if you add up the numbers, you see that, that Seth lived 807 plus 105 and that gets you about 912 years. So they had an extensive life. Now, people always want to question those numbers because people don't live that long anymore. And you can't question the numbers because uh, uh, they serve a purpose. They lived, they actually lived that long in the pre-flood environment when you had a water vapor canopy over the earth. The earth is protected from radiation, a number of other things. And remember I pointed out at one time that this is an environment that's only one stage removed from the fall. So still... It's perfection minus one, we might say. And man lived a long time. You can't try to get around this and say that, well, maybe these aren't years, these are months. Well, that doesn't work, especially if you get down to somebody who lives for um, 
40 years or 65, let's say Mahalalel lived 65 years and became the father of Jared. Well, 65 months is only about five and a half years. Well, you're not going to have anybody procreating at that early of an age. So it can't be months. These are legitimate numbers and they can't be broken. You can't leave out, some people say, well, there are gaps in the genealogy. That's, I'll tell you where that's based on. If you look at the Luke 4 genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ and compare it to the Genesis 11 genealogy, there is one person in the Luke 4 genealogy that is not in the Genesis 11. Now, that's one person. That's not, I mean, to get the kind of numbers that evolution is talking about for the age of the earth and the lifespan of the human race, you would have to have hundreds and hundreds of gaps that add up to thousands and thousands of years. All we have evidence of is one person listed in in Luke 4 who's not in Genesis 11. And the reason is that that person that's listed in Luke 4 is listed in the Septuagint version of Genesis 11. So it wasn't just pulled out of nowhere. There was probably a textual corruption in the Masoretic text of Genesis 11 that left somebody out. There's a number of ways to explain that, but we're only talking about one person. But when you have a formula that X lived so many years and gave birth to Y, and then he lived so many years, and then Y lived X number of years and gave birth to Z, and then Y lived so many years, you can't break it. No matter, even if the giving birth indicated a skip of a generation, if Seth lived 105 years and became the father of Enos, let's make Enos a grandson. It's still 105 years. You can't change the numbers. So what this tells us is that the earth is and human race is not nearly as old as evolutionary thought wants to make it. In fact, population figures suggest I showed a chart, the second lesson in this, showing various clocks that are used to track out time. And if you look at human population growth rate and extrapolate back in time, the growth rate indicates the human race is only four to 5,000 years old anyway. So we're arguing that uh, at least to the fall of Adam goes back to approximately uh, 4,000 B.C. And there's a number of problems that, that enter in. What about the dating systems? What about the fact that uh, ancient civilization history uh, indicates that civilization's been around like the Egyptian civilization's been around at 5,000, 6,000 B.C.? And part of it is that they, they assume a certain framework, so they find evidence to substantiate that. And we'll get into, we don't have time in this to get into all of the hydrodynamics and meteorological changes that would result from the flood. But there's some literature out there that has done a tremendous amount of work, especially with computer projections today, showing that after the fl- a flood environment, you had rapid shifts in the Earth's meteorology of ice ages and then warm periods and ice ages very rapidly over a period of time, whereas evolution, because it's denied cataclysmic events, sees those ice ages and those warm periods as much longer than they actually occurred. So if you're living in a belt around the equator, for example, in Egypt, and the poles come down almost to the Mediterranean, then you're going to have a very temperate climate and and a rainy climate around the equatorial belt. And so you're going to create a lot of... uh, you build with mud, you build with adobe, and then it rains and washes away and you rebuild. And those cycles from destruction to rebuilding are much closer together than what modern archaeologists are assuming because their presuppositions are long periods of time. So if you presuppose certain things, it's going to uh, point you to certain conclusions. Anyway, what we see in Genesis 4 and 5 is the decline of the human race. One individual stands out, Enoch. He walked with God. In Genesis 5.22, Enoch is in contrast to all of the descendants of Cain and many others who are ignorant of God and ignore God and in rebellion against God. But Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah. He had other sons and daughters, so all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And then in Genesis 5.24, and Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Now, Enoch just had such a close relationship with God and God is physically present on the earth and he's spending time with God and then one day he just walks right into heaven. He did not go through physical death. Now if you have time to chart, I didn't have time to do this for you, 
if you chart out all the ages of these antediluvian fathers, you realize that Enoch goes to be with God just prior to the flood. And his son Methuselah, he goes, it's not, Methuselah dies the year before the flood comes. So Methuselah is the oldest of the antediluvian patriarchs, and he lives to be about a total of 969 years. He is the oldest. And they all decease just prior to the coming of the flood. Now, the reason for the flood is, first of all, because of man's rebellion, man's failing to execute God's plan and purposes, and so God is going to bring judgment on them. The second reason is given in verse uh, 1 and 2 of Genesis 6. It came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Now, the sons of God here is a technical term in the Hebrew, B'nai Ha-Elohim, and it refers to the angels. Here it refers to fallen angels. It always refers to angels. It never discriminates between fallen angels and holy angels. It's used to describe all the angels, demons and as well, in Job. And it is a term that refers to the fact that these angels sought to destroy God's plan and purposes for mankind. This is uh, this has been the standard historical interpretation. Some people try to interpret this well. This is the uh, sons of God were the descendants of uh, of um, Seth, and the daughters of men are the descendants of, of Cain. That doesn't work for a number of reasons. Number one, sons of God is a technical term, as I said in the Hebrew, never refers to mankind in the Old Testament. And secondly, the population explosion that takes place prior to the flood is phenomenal because people live almost ten centuries, almost a millennium, they did, they, you would have ten to twelve generations living at the same time on the earth. That would be as if everybody who was born since the last millennium, 1,000, everybody who was born since then was still alive and walking on the earth. Thomas Aquinas, uh, Christopher Columbus, Ferdinand and Isabella, Elizabeth I would still be Queen of England, probably, Henry VIII would probably still be alive. Um, well, you would just have this, everybody would still be alive. George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, everybody would still be alive. We would have a population on the earth of probably 25 or 30 billion, if not more, if everybody was still living. And so if you take 10, 12 generations living coterminously on the earth and you just work out the numbers on the basis of four, or, 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 or four children per family. Now, I think they had a lot more than that. If they were living for 900 years, and they were able to procreate from the age of 30 to the age of, let's say, 500, they would have more than three or four children. But let's just be conservative and work out our numbers on the basis of four children per family. And with 12 generations living coterminously, you have a population on the earth at the time of the flood of probably not less than 2.5 billion and maybe as many as 10 billion. So the earth... The culture, the civilization that existed on the earth prior to the flood was a phenomenal civilization. It was They had filled the earth. Remember, they still have all of the genetic intelligence of uh, the original Adam. They are brilliant. They have not only the uh, higher IQ and higher mental capacity than mankind does today, but just think of all of the experience you accumulate over 900 years so that you don't just live and die. Just think of everything that somebody like da Vinci or Thomas Edison could have accomplished if they had had another 850 years to live. It boggles the mind. So they were there, there is no telling the kind of technological achievement which they were able to develop in that antediluvian civilization. And we know even the ancient civilizations of Egypt and Sumeria were able to do a number of things. We still don't know how they built the pyramids with the tools that they had and the technology they had available to them at that time. It was a different kind of technology than we have today, but they were very advanced. Not only that, they had the uh, intrusion of the demons and demonic intelligence. And the whole purpose of this demonic invasion is part of the angelic conflict to destroy the genetic purity of the human race. Now, you can ask the question, well, how did they do that? Angels 
have immaterial bodies. How can an immaterial body procreate with a material body and produce offspring? My explanation is, if you go over and we'll look at it later in Genesis chapter 15, when God comes to Abraham and he has two angels with him, they come into Abraham's tent and they sit down and they eat and they drink. These angels look like men. They have been able to uh, change their bodies into a physical body so that it has all of the functions of a physical material body. Then when they leave Abraham and they go to Lot, uh, and while they are there, all of the homosexuals in Sodom want to uh, have their way with these two men that have come into town because they can't perceive the difference between these men. They can't tell that they're angels. So they have all of the physical qualities of a human being. So I take it that the angels had the ability, at least at that time, to uh, change their form into a physical material form and to somehow uh, procreate because the text says so. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, took wives for them, whomever they chose, and then they had the offspring called the Nephilim in verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. Now, if you go back in almost every ancient culture that has a some sort of, of flood mythology, flood narrative episode in their mythology, and you have flood stories in almost every civil, ancient civilization on the earth, they found flood stories among Indians in South America, Aborigines in uh, Australia, uh, China. Every civilization has flood stories. They also have in their uh, mythology and in their pantheon these stories of these great, these, these gods that came down. You know, we have the story of how in, in Greek mythology how Zeus came down and took a human wife and the offspring was Hercules. Hercules is half god and half man. This is the historical uh, background to those legends and mythology. That those were not things that just man just invented on his own, but there was a historical basis for that in the story of the Nephilim here in Genesis chapter 6. Now, before I get any further away from the genealogy, let's do a comparison of what happens before and after the flood. If you look up on the, on the chart here, this is a lot of detail, but what I've done is to set this up so that on this chart, from, here's the age range from 100 up to 1,000. So Adam lived about 960-something years. You have Adam, Seth, Enosh, and here are the ages of the death of each person prior to the flood. This is the age that they reached maturity, maturity being indicated by when they had their, when their son was mentioned. So you have uh, this line here for maturity. And then Noah does, it just says that when Noah was 500, he had the three sons. I don't think he had them all when he was 500. It just indicates that by the time he was 500, Ham, Shem, and Japheth had all been born. And then look at the dramatic decrease after the fall. It, it just falls off. The, the age of maturity stays roughly the same, a little younger, but roughly level. But the age of death, the age of mortality declines. And you can graph this on an exponent, and it falls into a ex perfect exponential decay curve, which indicates, number one, that there are no gaps because it can be mathematically projected and extrapolated. And that indicates, once again, all of this indicates that the text can be trusted. You can't have people come along and just make this sort of thing up. Furthermore, you have within the, like the flood narrative itself that we're studying right now from Genesis 6 to Genesis 9, the entire layout is a very detailed chiasm. I don't have time to go through all the details there, but it's perfectly laid out on a chiastic structure indicating that the author took pains with how he wrote this, that one author wrote the whole thing. It wasn't one author here, and then another author came along and added stuff later, and then some editor put it all together. It indicates that one person wrote the entire document, and so it has uh, reliability and veracity. Now, the flood comes along because man has rebelled against God and because at a certain point there's going to be a sort of a, a, a level of, um, of critical mass where the numbers of people who have been 
when when you have this genetic insertion from the angelic from the from the demons and the development of the Nephilim, the the genetic uh, makeup of the human race has now been polluted by this angelic strain. Now, if God is going to redeem the race, He has to do that with a Son who is pure humanity, true humanity. So when the second person of the Trinity is incarnate, He can't have a human body that's been tainted by angelic DNA. So He has God judges the race in order to purify the race. Passages in 1 Peter 3.20, also in... Job indicate that there is a segment of fallen. I mean, not Job, uh, Jude indicate that there is a segment of angels that are held in prison in Tartarus right now. It is these demons that violated the, their abode, their their position in Genesis chapter six. So the Genesis chapter six sons of God, these demons are in prison in Tartarus right now because of their violation here. And from this point on, God restricted the demons from being able to do this sort of thing again. Now we come to verse 9 and we read the phrase, these are the records of the generation of Noah. And we've seen this is a technical term in the Hebrew. The Hebrew, the word is toledot. And it indicates a major division in the writing. You have these are the generations of the heaven and the earth introduces the section from Genesis 2, uh, Genesis 2, 4 up through the end of chapter 4. Then you have these are the generations of Adam from Genesis 5.1 up through Genesis 6.8. And now we have these are the records of, these are the generations of Noah, and this covers the next two or three chapters. And God comes along and He calls out Noah because Noah is one of the few people left on the earth who is still obedient to God, who's responded to the gospel of that time. I believe there was some sort of canon of Scripture that time. I, I, you can't prove that, but because God is who He is and God is going to reveal Himself, I think God had a physical presence and there was also some sort of Scripture at that time. And what I base that on is Genesis chapter 6, verse 3. Skipped over that, but I want to come back to it. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. That's what it reads in the New American Standard and probably the King James Version. And a uh, little hint, New American Standard, whenever they translated anything from the Hebrew, they just had a sort of a knee-jerk response and automatically took the definition from the standard Hebrew dictionary called Brown, Driver, and Briggs. Well, Brown, Driver, and Briggs was really developed at the beginning of the 20th century and because of linguistic studies, archaeological discoveries, and other things, we now have a better handle on the meaning of some Hebrew words than can be found in what we, what seminary students affectionately call BDB. I think I almost destroyed one, one of those in one semester of Hebrew. I had to open it and close it so many times. But um, the Hebrew word that is translated strife here is what's called a hapax legomena. Now, that's a word nobody ever heard of before. That's the technical term for a word that's used only one time. Now, whenever you do word studies and try to define a word and find its meaning, you look at usage. Word meaning is defined not by a dictionary, but by how a word is used. That's how you get a dictionary definition. The person who's doing the dictionary takes a look at all the ways a word is used and then developed from that the definitions, what the word means. The words don't have necessarily um, a, a, a sort of an objective meaning. So the Lord says, my spirit's going to strive with man. Now, this word's only used one time in Hebrew, so you can't go out and compare. You can't say, well, how did Isaiah use it? How did Jeremiah use it? How did uh, David use it? There's no other usage of the word anywhere else in Hebrew literature. Now, when the King James Version, when they translated it, they had no idea, but because the context seems to indicate conflict between God and man, they thought, well, it seems to indicate some kind of strife here, so we'll translate it strife. Well, now as a result of the discoveries in Akkadian and Ugaritic and other cognate or related languages to Hebrew, we know that when this word is found in other languages, it means to abide, to abide, to be there, to, to remain. And so if, if you translate this, the Lord said, my spirit will not remain or abide with man forever, it gives a completely different slant to the significance of this verse, especially if you put that in context with the fact that God's presence is still on the earth in Eden and there's still the cherubim with the, with the flaming sword keeping all of these perverted people out of the Garden of Eden. And now God says, well, my spirit's not going to stay here forever. So just as you had the physical presence of, you will have the physical presence of God on the earth 
in the person of the Messiah during the future 1,000-year rule of Christ, so you had the presence of God physically on the earth during this period from the fall to the flood. And then with the flood, God is going to leave the earth. Well, Noah and his family are among the few who are going to follow God. So God calls Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We don't know if there were more, but it is going to be through Noah, his wife, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their wives, these eight people, that the human race is going to survive this flood. Now, God warns Noah that there's going to be a flood, and then he tells, gives him instructions to build an ark. And it takes him 120 years to build the ark. This is a massive engineering feat. I have at home about an inch thick, uh, 8.5 by 11 page book written by, uh, it's an engineering study written by a guy named John Woodmerappy. And Woodmerappy has gone through every conceivable issue that you would have to deal with to put a menagerie of 75,000 animals on a boat and feed them and take care of them and clean up after them for a period of one year because that's how long they were on the ark. And it's a fascinating study and he's covered ideas and things that I never would have occurred to me that you would have to deal with. And on the basis of very rudimentary technology, he shows how all of this is feasible. And, of course, most people, when they think of the ark, they think of a boat that's too small and they don't understand uh, anything about the dimensions at the time. So let's look at the capacity of the ark. We know of the fact that there are probably less than 18,000 species. Now, species in biology is a much broader term than kind. So by looking at the term 18,000 species, there are probably fewer than 10,000 kind, but we're going to take the most conservative approach to this. So we'll say right now we know that there are probably on the earth less than 18,000 species. If you take two unclean and seven clean, this is the other mistake people make when they talk about the ark, is they think that all the animals were taken two by two. But God gives instructions, Noah's to take two of every unclean and seven of every clean. Three pairs of clean. A clean animal would be sheep. Why the extra one? so that they would have a sacrifice when they came off the ark. Clean animals were used for sacrifice. And, of course, this presupposes that Noah knows what a clean animal and an unclean animal is, but the text never told us, did it? Nowhere do they define certain things. So they just these hints that God has given a tremendous amount of revelation to these people that we're not uh, made aware of. So you take two of every unclean animal and seven of every clean, you have approximately 7,000 animals. Now, the average species size even if you take into account uh, large dinosaurs, large mammals such as um, uh, elephants and mammoths and mastodons and other large animals, there are, hundreds, there are tens of thousands, or I guess just thousands, of species that are very small. Rodents, rabbits, squirrels, mosquitoes. You know, we all know the joke about why didn't you just flash the mosquitoes? So the average size of all the species is that of a sheep. A sheep is about average. So let's do some computations. How big was the ark? The ark was 438 feet long, 72.9 feet wide, and 43.8 feet high. No ship was built with that capacity until 1858. And then it wasn't until 1858. 70s that a ship of much larger dimensions was built. So it was it was in the shape of a box. In fact, that's what arc means. It means a box. And it had the kind of ratio between its length, its width, and its height that made it very compact and it could stand. Uh, scientists have done studies on it, in ter- hydrodynamic studies in terms of waves. And the arc was such that it could withstand a turn up to almost 90 degrees and then and still right itself. So if you think in terms of the hydrodynamics of the flood, you're probably talking about uh, three or 400 foot waves at least if you are seri- take the text seriously. So the ark would not only ride out a storm with those dimensions, but it, because of those dimensions, it was very long and narrow. It would turn sideways, or it would, yeah, it would ride sideways to the, to the wave so that it could uh, withstand all of the tumults. So th- anyway, these are the dimensions, 438 by 72.9 by 43, almost 44 feet high. This would entail 
1,400,000 cubic feet, which has the equivalent carrying capacity of 522 standard uh, railroad livestock cars. 522 standard livestock cars. Now, you can get 240 sheep per car, and that's pretty standard for carrying sheep. If you multiply that out, that would indicate that 522 standard livestock cars could carry over 125,000 sheep. So that would mean that you had room in the ark for over 125,000 sheep. Well, let's go back up to our earlier figure up here where we see that, that you had approximately 75,000 animals. That's at the, very, at the very most, the largest amount you could probably had on the ark was, was 75,000 no more, probably closer to 50. But just taking all the... The largest numbers we can, you got 75,000. But you have room for 125,000, so that's 50,000 left over. So there was an enormous amount of room on the ark. There were three floors. You had room to store food for um, for the entire year. Also, many mammals will go into hibernation for much of that time. You didn't have to take adult animals. You could take children. There are many different ways you can cut down on size capacity. The point of all this is that the story of the flood is very feasible. When you look at, compare it to, for example, the Babylonian Gilgamesh epic or some of the other flood stories that have survived, they're not feasible. But you can do an engineering, a feasibility study, read Wood Morapi's work, and you have an incredible, an incredible feat of engineering that is uh, very, very feasible. Now, how long did the flood take? Well, they went into the ark on the tenth day of the second month of Noah's 600th year, according to Genesis 7:11. They were in the ark for a week, and then it began to rain. God closed the door. This indicates there's only one way into God's grace recovery system at the flood. There's only one way to salvation, Jesus Christ. Noah did not close the door. God closed the door. This is the picture of eternal security. God is the one who secures us and God is the one who protects us. So the family goes into the ark with all the animals and for 40 days and 40 nights it rained. The windows of heaven were open and the fountains of the deep burst forth. Now, if you go back and you look at what the earth was like at that time because of the creation, you have the, the earth's surface itself and then there is it's surrounded by a gaseous atmosphere and then God had separated the waters above from the waters below. So you have some sort of vapor canopy or ice crystals. We're not sure exactly the form it took. It could have been liquid. Apparently the stars were visible through it. Something similar to Venus. This would have a tremendous impact both in terms of protection from radiation. You would have a pretty stable temperature which would indicate wind, no winds during the the uh, antediluvian period, winds are a product of temperature change. You don't have winds, you don't have your precipitation cycle, evaporation, uh, and then condensation and precipitation. So there's no rain at all. So when Noah's walking around warning everybody that it's going to rain, that's going to be God's judgment. Rain was a meaningless term. They had no frame of reference. What happens is the windows of heaven are open, the fountains of the deep burst forth. Uh, I think the fountains of the deep probably refers to volcanic activity. You had massive amounts of tectonic activity. Volcanoes spew forth billions and billions of tons of volcanic ash into the upper atmosphere. And it is around that, those microscopic particles of volcanic ash, that you have condensation of the water vapor, and then it precipitates out. And whenever it rains, in order to get a raindrop, it's always got at its core some kind of dust particle. So this would just be one possible explanation of the mechanics of the flood. And then you have the worldwide flood. Forty days and forty nights, but it didn't stop there. It continued. There are 110 days where the water continues to rise, rise up, which adds up to 110 plus 40 is 150 days, and the ark comes to rest on Mount Ararat. I don't think there were mountains before the flood. I think that the uh, tectonic activity of the flood caused a massive amount of pressure on the earth's crust, which developed all of the mountain ranges, or, or most of them, as well as continental drift. After 150 days, the ark rested. This would be on the 17th day of the 7th month of Noah's 600th year. And then there's 74 days when the waters began to decrease. Now, if you've ever been anywhere where there's been a flood, you just think of the dynamics 
of all this water pressure on the face of the earth. The entire surface is covered for 150 days. That is going to change everything. Nothing is going to be the same after the flood. Then the tops of the mountains became visible in Genesis 8.5. And then after 40 days, he sends out a raven. And then seven days later, he sends out the first dove, waits another week, sends out the second dove, finally sends out the third dove that returns with the olive branch. And then we another period of time goes by before God finally gives the order to offload, making the total number of days 371. So they go onto the ark on the tenth day of the second month of his 600th year, and they get off one year and 17 days later, or 317 days later. So that's the chronology of the flood, changes your whole perspective of this entire event. And then we have a disruptive and terrible episode that occurs indicating that man's heart has not changed. He's still wicked. We have the episode when they come off, they of course sacrifice. God establishes a new covenant with Noah and then he farms and he plants a vineyard. And from that vineyard he develops, uh, makes some good wine and he gets drunk. And there's a scene of embarrassment where he Ham goes in and looks upon his nakedness. Now there's no indication there that anything takes place. This is not indicating some sort of homosexuality or anything else. It is simply a sign of disrespect of the son for the father. And as a result of that, he goes in and he looks on and probably ridicules his father's drunkenness, tells his brothers, and they show respect. They take a garment and cover him. They don't look at him. They don't ridicule him. And when he wakes up, he realizes what he'd done. And then in verses 25 to 27, there's the blessing and cursing statement of Noah. He said, Cursed be Canaan. Now, Canaan is the son of Ham. He doesn't curse Ham, neither does he bless Ham. The cursing goes to Canaan. Now, why is that important? You're on the plains of Moab. You're the nation Israel, approximately three million strong, and you're getting ready to go where? Into the land of the Canaanites, the descendants of Canaan, and God is giving them into your hands as judgment upon them because of their sexual perversion. Now it makes sense. Canaan was cursed. Why, you see a foreshadowing in this curse that Ham and his, specifically his son Canaan probably are already living out this, this genetic tendency in the family line towards sexual perversion. And so Canaan is cursed. He said, A servant of servants he shall be to his brother. And then in verse 26, he, uh, Noah also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. So the Shemites, the Semites, the Jews are descendants of Shem. And there is this blessing here that it will be the God of Shem. So Shem has a spiritual blessing upon him which is developed through the Jews. Canaan is going to serve the, Shem, uh, the, the, the Shemites, the Jews. And then in verse 27, May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. Now, now, the Gentile races, the European races, the Western European, Indo-European races are descendants of Japheth. They dwell in the tents of Shem. We are dwelling, we are Western European here, we're dwelling in the tents of Shem. We're sitting here this morning reading the Scriptures given to the Semites. So you see that there is a blessing to the Shemites, a blessing to the Japhethites, and one of the most fascinating studies that you can do is to work out the development of civilization in terms of the three descendants of Ham, Shem, and Japheth and where they went in the world and how there are general tendencies among each group in light of the cursing and blessing of Noah and how it's worked its way out to the present day. A man by the name of Arthur Cousins, who is a, a Canadian sociologist and anthropologist, did a remarkable study called Adam's Three Sons. Fortunately, it's out of print now, but it's very detailed and he traces this history down through the centuries and it's fascinating to see how it all works out. So just to indicate there's tremendous historical support for everything that is said here in the text. And then you come to Genesis chapter 10 and once again you're struck with the same sort of depravity that you find back in Genesis 4 and Genesis 5. Man continues to rebel against God and this culminates in the massive international global rebellion that takes place at the Tower of Babel and then God has to confuse the language. Because up to this point, everybody spoke the same language. 
but that was the unifying feature. And so God has to confuse the language. Once you divide people up according to language, these people over here speak one language, these people speak another language, these people a fourth language or third language, and these people a fourth language, then nobody can understand each other, then you're all going to go to different corners of the earth to live, and you're going to intermarry. Now you've restricted the gene pool, and you're going to have the development of racial distinctions, because up to this point, there was nothing to restrict certain genetic tendencies. Now you have something that is going to restrict these genetic tendencies, and so this group over here is going to have certain traits dominate, this group will have certain other traits dominate, these people have certain other traits dominate, and that will work itself out in terms of the development of races and civilization. And at that point, the entire human race again is in rebellion against God. He's promised Noah he will never destroy them by flood again. So what is God going to do? We see his redemptive purpose in calling out a unique nation in the person of Abraham. And we will start with Abraham next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank You so much that we see Your hand in history, that man has volition, but man uses that continuously to reject You, continuously to try to make his own path, set his own agenda, and follow his own course. And yet You in Your grace not only judge man, but with that judgment You provide a blessing. And You always give grace prior to judgment. You always have that offer of salvation. Just as Noah preached for 120 years before the flood, so there is always the proclamation of your grace prior to judgment. And now we have salvation given us in Jesus Christ. That is the announcement of grace prior to eternal judgment. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is uncertain of their eternal destiny, that right now they would make the most important decision of their life. Scripture says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's not a matter of works, it's not a matter of human effort. It's not a matter of religion or ritual. It's a matter of faith alone in Christ alone. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Now, Father, you pray that you, we pray that You would take the things that we have studied and learned this morning and that we would be challenged by them, that we would have a greater respect for Your Word and a, a, a greater understanding of its veracity and of its infallibility. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.